so anyway, we'd love to take your uh, children and, and love them into relationship with Christ. You're welcome to take them uh, back there as well. Man, this is a really exciting time to be part of uh, this particular church. And I say particular because we're all part of the church, Big C. But it's a really exciting time to be part of what God is doing amongst us. As I mentioned during our announcements before everybody got here, we, um, we have got two Sundays left, today and next Sunday, and it's a bittersweet for us. I mean, Will, Will Rogers has been, it really what it is, it's a, it's a result of God's faithfulness. When we first dreamed about what God was calling us to do with the vine and all that that kind of shaped out, this, this facility, this place was really a result of a kind of a miraculous move of the Lord. And if I had a lot of time, and, and maybe I will in the next couple of weeks when moving to this space, tell you about sort of what the Lord did to even bring us to this place and how he put people here for just small amounts of time that gave us windows to get in. It's a remarkable story. But the picture of our worship here is a picture of God's um, faithfulness. And it's a very exciting one. So our move to uh, our new location on 49th and Western, the old Iglesia building, is a little bit bittersweet. We're excited about it uh, and God's faithfulness, but uh, this place for us has been a, a real product of, of God's, sort of a picture of God's, God's faithfulness. So we're excited, but we have two Sundays left. Next Sunday, we'll take communion here, share communion in this place in the, for the last time, and then on 10-7, we'll be going to two services, a 9 and 11, mainly because our new worship space is smaller, and we want to create space for new people, and we're going to be walking the neighborhood next week, inviting people to come right after church, go putting flyers on doors, so if you can do that with us, we'd love to have you do that. But we want you to start thinking, and for those of you that are like, hey, I would love to go to church at 9, um, we want you to go ahead and begin to think about that. You'll see an email that will come out next week that's going to ask some of you to commit to the 9 o'clock service for like five or six months so that we can get some momentum there. Um, but really, they're identical services. They'll be just the same except for the preaching because I really, I don't know that I can ever replicate what I do. So we'll, uh, you know, maybe a little different here and there. But the music will be the same, all right? And, uh, but the services for the most part will be, will be identical. So you can come at 9 and, and be done by uh, 10, 15. And, and between 10, 15, and 11, the two services of when we're going to do our common coffee and donuts and all that, so you get to stick around and mingle and meet people, and, and we'll give you a lot more details next week about everything will unfold on the 7th. So make sure you're here next week to come be a part of our last sort of celebration of God's faithfulness in this one uh, particular space. So for the past six weeks, I've really been preaching through our mission. We talked a lot about how we articulate what we, who and what we want to be together. And at this time when we're moving into a new space and we're trying to raise a bunch of money and, and we're trying to, to put things and stuff and names on things and signs and all this stuff, I've been talking about how important it is to, for us to remember why we exist in the first place. So we've been talking through a mission that was really over the, just six weeks ago, was our first real articulation of why we exist as a church. We've got uh, some values and we have an approach to life that we call love God, love people, follow Jesus. But really our mission, why we exist, is what we've been working through. And that articulation is simply this, to love much and love well as we take the gospel to the one and to the city into the world. And we've talked through each piece of that. We explored what it means to love much and the abundant, sort of extravagant nature of God's love and how we're called to love people in that way. We talked about loving well, which is really about intentionality. Loving when it's hard to love and being intentional about how we love people and, and how we understand how God loves us. We talked about the gospel and, and what it really is that we're taking to the world and to the one and to the city and, and what the gospel looks like and that it's not a message in a systematic theology and a series of things. Instead, it's a person. The gospel is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, and it's hope and freedom. And we talked about taking hope and freedom into the world, living as a sent people. 
Two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of the individual, taking the gospel to the one, and how the one matters to the Lord, and what matters to the Lord should matter to us. And then last week, we talked about the city. And we talked about why it's important that we as a church have a heartbeat for our city. And I talked about how we've made some intentional decisions over the past really few, almost year, but really six months about remaining where we are and not taking the opportunity to to move outside the sort of the, the core boundaries of the city in order to find cheaper places to rent and things like that. But we really felt called to be here and we looked at Jeremiah and, and the Lord's words to the exiles uh, that were kind of held captive in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar and, his, and his, his thoughts about the city that they found themselves in, about planting their life, rooting their life in. Right? And uh, he talked about seeking peace and prosperity and how for us, seeking peace is, and prosperity is something we've got to work towards. We want to fight for those that are oppressed. We want to fight for justice for those that can't fight for themselves. We want to love the fatherless and the widow. We want to be a people that, that are passionate about seeking peace and the well-being of the city. And then we talked about praying for the city and what it really means to have a heartbeat for the city. And When was the last time that you spent time praying for your city, praying for its leaders, praying for its people, praying that God would intersect your lives with the people around you? The last piece of this puzzle for us really comes in that last phrase, the one, the city, and the world. What does it really mean to take the gospel to the world? And I spent a lot of time thinking about this because we've really articulated this quite often. If you've been coming for any period of time, you've heard me preach on mission, you've heard me preach on our heartbeat for the world, and there, you know, there's only cer- uh, certain ways that you can continue to say this stuff over and over again. So this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually share some thoughts that we've shared before, and I'm going to use some verses that are really central to us. And if you're sitting there going, man, this sounds familiar, it's because it should be. It's something that we continue to talk about over and over and again. I want you to know it. I want you to, to wrestle with it. I want you to think about it. I want it to be ingrained in who we are. I want you never to be able to forget it because these truths don't change. And I can come up with a whole bunch of cutesy ways to say the same thing, but the reality is the truth is what we need to kind of burn into our hearts, especially when it comes to how we live in the world. So the picture that we're going to look at today really is a perspective on mission. Who we're called to be, because in, in today's Christian culture, it's so easy to be etern- internally, internally focused on ourselves. Hey, right now, we need to focus on our growth, right? If we're, gonna, if we're not going to grow, we're not going to be able to afford that, that new space over there. Or we need to focus on really developing programs well, or my children need this, or my want, we've developed all these things that I want. And when we get focused on that, sometimes we miss the, the part of our call that says we exist to be sent to the farthest regions of this world to the ends of the earth, and there's a strong, strong emphasis on that in Scripture, that the church, the followers of Christ, are meant to be sent, and we're exploring about being sent to the one, and to the city, and to the very ends of the earth. So this morning, we're going to take a look at the, the, book, or the book of Acts chapter 1, as we really sort of open our perspective on mission with some thoughts that we've, we've kind of looked at before, and that have really shaped us as a community. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1, uh, we'll be in verse 6-ish. Uh, right in there, and, and before we do that, let's take a moment and let's just, uh, let's just pray together. Lord, these, these are just crazy, exciting days. A um, lot of unknowns. Uh, lot, Lord, a lot of excitement about what you're doing in us and our ability to put a footprint into this community to really establish uh, roots and love our neighbors. Lord, the, the way that you've uh, been f- financially faithful to this church is, is remarkable. The way that you've raised people within its our, our community that want to serve and love and, and will come and do the things that it takes to be the church have blown me away. 
Lord, I'm excited about our mission because I believe our mission is your mission. I believe it's straight from Scripture. I don't believe we created something because we needed something. We, we just took what you're already calling us to do and formulated it in a way that helps us remember it. And so, God, this morning as we talk about mission and we talk about the world and our, our call to go to the world, Lord, I pray that you would let these familiar thoughts ring true in our own hearts, that as a church we would never forget the call that we have to take the gospel to the furthest reaches, Father, to support those that have given their lives um, to take the gospel to people who have never heard it. So, Lord, as we talk about the world today, we, we don't forget the comments that we've talked about about the individual and about the city, but it's a, it's a both and all the time. Take a moment and just ask God to help you see this same truth in a really new way this morning. Just ask God, God, God help me see this familiar truth in a new way. Just whisper that in your heart. Ask God to, to move in you that way. Take a moment and pray for somebody beside you or around you. Um, be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would, um, would move in them, that he would do something powerful in their lives. Lord, we pray that your word, uh, would, you would speak to us through your word this morning. Lord, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. Lord, your word is sharper uh, than a double-edged sword. Lord, it is living and active, and we pray that you would penetrate our hearts with this truth um, today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 1 is a crazy, exciting time in the life of these believers. The church has, well, not quite yet been formed yet, and the, but, you know, it hasn't quite kind of... Uh, been born. And uh, just a few chapters later, really one chapter later, we're going to see <clears throat> the gift of the Holy Spirit falling on the believers, and we're going to really see at that point in time what we call the birth of the church. The church really becomes the church at that point in time. But really right now is sort of those initial phases of believers gathered together. The risen Christ is still making appearances and is yet to be <clears throat> taken up into heaven, which we are going to see this morning. And Jesus has been crucified, and he's been raised from the dead, and he's been making miraculous appearances to the disciples and other people. And, and he has now, in chapter 1 of Acts, appeared to the disciples and a few others that are gathered there in Jerusalem. And he's giving them some final instructions. And these are the last sort of recorded words of Jesus um, before he is ascended, literally taken up into heaven before their very eyes. <clears throat> and so these words are really important. They're important words because they're the last ones that we see Jesus say. And if you're thinking about what's the last thing that Jesus would say to his disciples before he's literally taken up to be with the Father, and let's pay attention to those words because you think those would be the ones that he wants us to hang on to, and sure enough, they are, they are game changers. And for us as a church, these verses changed everything for us because when we were first forming the very concept of the vine, we were dreaming out what we believed God was calling us to do. When we were really just kind of going, God, where are you? It really was born out of the book of Acts. We were in a group studying this, and I was teaching through Acts verse by verse, and we just were working through it, and, and this really piece of text right here, Acts chapter 1, began to shape us because we began to really have an understanding for what it means to be sent. And we truly believe that the church is a sent people. We are sent to the world um, to reflect and be witnesses uh, to the risen Christ. And so these verses are very central to who we are, and they've shaped our community. Um, in fact, they've given life to our heartbeat. And so um, this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples as he gathers, gathers with them for the very last time. He, he has, 
He has been raised from the dead, and he's about to be ascended into heaven. And these are his last words. He tells them to stay in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit. And then he says this. So when they met together, the disciples, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And then he said to them, it is not for you to know the days or the times that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was, taking up, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So Jesus is spending these last moments with the disciples and they're in this sort of room in Jerusalem. And he's sharing these words with them and he tells them, don't leave here until the Holy Spirit, the promised gift, is given to you. Right? All this talk about the Holy Spirit has got the disciples thinking, and, and they started asking questions. And one of the questions they asked Jesus was, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And that's when Jesus says, hey, look, it's not for you to know the day or the time, but, right, that the Father has set before you, but you will be my witnesses both here in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And then, in a cloud, he was literally ascended, taken up into heaven, hidden from their eyes, and Jesus went to be with the Father. These are crazy, exciting times. But there, it's a remarkable situation that's unfolding here because the disciples have been through a, a ridiculous sort of emotional roller coaster over the past really 40 days. They have seen their, the Jesus, the guy that they walked around the countryside with, and they've seen him feed 5,000 and cast out demons and heal people and, and give the deaf the ability to hear and the mute the ability to talk and the blind sight. All those things, they've seen him betrayed. Beaten to the point of almost being unrecognizable and then murdered on a Roman cross. They wept. They gathered. They were fearful. They were afraid. Then there was a rumor of his resurrection. And then there was the reality of his resurrection. Then the appearances on, to the women on the road and then to them in the upper room. And then multiple appearances as Jesus showed up and he shows up on the side of the lake and Peter jumps in the water and swims over there. And Jesus, I mean, all these resurrection appearances. And now Jesus gathered with them for the last moment and he shared these thoughts. And then before their very eyes, and a miracle is as powerful as the ones they've seen before, Jesus is taken up to be with the Father. And their last words to them, Jesus says, stay here and wait for the gift. The one I've been telling you about, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Father. Right? And listen, all this talk about the Holy Spirit and about the gift and all these things have, got, have really got them thinking. The coming of the kingdom of God has got the disciples thinking about themselves and about Israel. And, and somebody, we don't really know who, kind of formulates a thought. And they say, Jesus, can I ask you a question? Is, is it now that you are going to redeem and restore, restore the nation of Israel? Because you've got to understand, all the Jewish people believe that the Messiah was going to come and reestablish the nation of Israel. Because Na Israel was under Roman occupation. They weren't a free country. And all along, they thought the Messiah was going to come just like David come riding into town on a stallion, overthrow the Roman government, establish the powerful kingdom of Israel again, and they would be a nation, powerful, like in the days of David. That's what they had all hoped for. Which is really why Jesus was rejected in the first place, because he came riding into town on a donkey, right? Not to overthrow the Roman government, not to redeem Israel from its oppressors, but to redeem humanity from its sinfulness. The disciples who'd spent all this time with Jesus still weren't grasping it. And they looked at him and they said, is now the time when Israel will be restored? 
We've been through all these things. Is this it? Because that was really their focus. Their focus was on this sort of thing about us. Even all the things they've seen Jesus do. Even the the conversations with the the, the woman at the well and all of the parables and all these things, they're still saying, this boils back down to what are you going to and when are you going to do this for us? And I really believe it's it's a question about perspective. And Jesus' response to the disciples is powerful because he's reminding them about how small their perspective is. And their perspective is so me-driven. It's when are you going to do this for us, redeem us, restore us, set our nation up again? When are we going to be back in power or back in control? Or when are we going to be free of these oppressors? Is this the time? We're so excited. Is this the time? Jesus' response to them is, listen, it's not for you to know the day or the time the Father has set up. He basically dodges the question, ignores it, and does something by kind of revealing to them that their questions are way too small. Their perspective is way too narrow. It's not about Israel being restored because what God was doing was something so much larger. Jesus' death and resurrection was so much bigger than the restoration of the kingdom of Israel as a nation. But it was the promise of life to humanity. And so Jesus basically lets them know that their questions, their perspective was way too small. And I think about the church, and I think about me, and I think about my own life and what I'm concerned with and what the church is wrapped up in. And oftentimes I think our perspective is so small. God, when are you going to, to do this for me? When am I going to have this kind of financial freedom? God, when am I going to have, be rid, rid, kind of rid of this thing? God, as a church, we want to be this. We want to do that. And it's all driven on the questions that circle around the idea of me or us or when. But when we see the world through the eyes of Jesus, it blows that lens up because it's so much bigger than me. And the disciples are missing that. Even after all this time, hey, is this the time, Jesus? So Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, look, it's not for you to know the day or the time the Father has set up before you, right? By his own authority. He says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. So he says, listen, it's not for you to know. Your perspective's way too small. So we're going to skip that one. But you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. He's saying, whatever this thing is, it's, it's not going to be something you do on your own. You're not going to be able to use your own power to do it, your own skill set, but you're going to have to receive power from God, and God will do it through you. And you, when that happens, you will then become my witnesses. You've got to think about the role of witness, and we've talked about this before. A witness is someone that testifies just to what they know. Right, so when, if you're in a, in a courtroom setting and you call a witness to the stand, that witness exists to just testify to what they know. Those attorneys will ask that expert witness or that witness what they saw or what they know about this thing. But they're not going to ask them something about what they don't know. They're not going to ask uh, someone that's an expert in, in whatever to, you know, talk about something they don't know about. And I think a lot of our kind of, uh, our, our, the way that we push back against evangelism and mission at times is really driven by the fact that we feel like we don't know everything. But the idea of a witness empowered by God is that we testify just to what we know. Look, I don't know all, you know, all 28 chapters of the book of Acts in Greek. And I can't read Hebrew and I can't tell you about the Mosaic law, but I can tell you what I do know about Jesus. And that was, I was dying and he gave me life. See, the witness testifies to what they know. And Jesus says, you will be my witnesses when you receive power, which means it won't be on your doing, but on God's power. Now, what's important to this in terms of mission is simply this. I think a lot of times our, our perspective as a church and as people is way too small. 
God, what are you doing in me? What are you going to do with me? How does this affect me? How does this affect our church? The denominational structure of our, of our sort of Christian subculture is wrapped up in the me question, the us question, the maintenance question. Local churches are wrapped up in this as well. We're wrapped up in the us, me question. Perspective's way too small. We also think that a lot of these things we have to do on our own power. So I've got to be a witness and evangelist, uh, uh, and, and that's not for me. I mean, missions is great, and evangelism is great, but it's great for you or for the pastor or for this person who's gifted, but I'm not gifted. Well, you're right. You're not gifted, and that's why the, the, Jesus is saying you will receive power from God. It won't be you, and when you do, you will witness to what you know. You don't have to make up a bunch of stuff. You just talk about how God has changed you. And that becomes the sending place for the church. And then Jesus says, once you open your perspective, you realize that God will empower you, right? And all you've got to do is talk about what you know. Then you'll become my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. And these are very intentional, specific phrases. He says, you'll become my witnesses in Jerusalem. Now, they were in Jerusalem. It's right there. And I actually heard a sermon one time preached on these verses that talked about how, how this was a strategic mission uh, formula. That we share the gospel first in our surrounding here and what's comfortable and what we know in the Jerusalem. And then once we've done that, then we go to Judea, which is a, a bigger picture of the countryside. And then we go to Samaria, which is one step beyond. And then we go to the ends of the earth. It's, a really, it's actually really a misread to read Jesus' words that way because, first of all, Jerusalem was not something these guys were comfortable with. These are fishermen from Galilee. Most of them have never been educated. They are in the middle of all religious, the sort of religious elite, the hub of all that is kind of important culturally. This was not comfortable for these 12 or so fellows and ladies. This was not comfort. It wasn't about saying, hey, if I can share the gospel here, I can do it anywhere. Jerusalem was hostile. Most of these people were thinking they may lose their life. I mean, think about Peter. Even at that moment when Jesus was in, in, uh, in, the, in the Roman, he was on, beaten by the Romans, and, and some lady looks at him and says, hey, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And what does Peter do? He denies it because he's afraid. Jerusalem was not a safe place, but it was where they were was right in the middle of their circumstance and Jesus says you'll be my witnesses right in the middle of where you are Jerusalem right here from this room you'll be my witnesses he says and then you're gonna be my witnesses in Judea which is a bigger picture which is a surrounding area he goes you'll be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem and in Judea you will go beyond these walls you will step outside of what you know you will step outside of exactly where you are your workplace your family your life and you'll be my witness there you also be my witness in Samaria We've talked about this about a bunch. In fact, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Samaria was the place that everybody hated, right? They hated Samaria because those people, well, they were of mixed blood. And I gave you a big history, like a short history of, of a sort of an Old Testament history last week. When the northern empire of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, they hauled them off into exile, much the way that happened with the Babylonians and the southern empire. But when the Assyrians came in, they took over the northern empire they, they literally drug them off and put them in exile. When those Jewish people intermarried with the Assyrians, they created a mixed line of people, and those people became the Samaritans. And the Jewish people, pure Jewish people, hated the Samaritans because they were mixed blood. They broke God's law, and they intermarried and had children with non-Jewish people. And the Jewish people wouldn't even set foot in Samaria. And I told you this. They would cross the Jordan River. They would walk 15 miles out of their way 
and then cross back over just so their feet didn't have to touch the soil of Samaria. And of course, that's everybody but Jesus because Jesus sort of goes right through it. But Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses where you don't want to go and the places that others won't go. And then he says, you'll be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. When we talk about the world, when we talk about taking the gospel to the one, to the city, and the world, we're really using this sending principle, which is like it or not, missions is not for somebody else. Missions is not something that we do. Mission as a ch- missions as a church, as a follower of Christ, is who we are. We are called to testify through God's power right where we are, in the middle of our workplace, in the middle of our lives, in the middle of your family, in the middle of your neighborhood. We're called to witness to the bigger picture, to the city, to the region, to the state. We're called to go to the places that no one else will go, to the corners of our city where the church doesn't want to go, where there's poverty and plight and crime, to the parts of the world where no one's ever heard of the gospel, to the parts of the world where if you say you're a follower of Christ, Well, people may be imprisoned, people may be killed, to the very ends of the earth. When we talk about the world and our desire to take the gospel there, we're talking about the mission of God. As a church and as followers of Christ, we have got to unseat ourselves from this me-driven perspective that says missions and evangelism is for somebody else. You don't have that luxury as a follower of Christ. As someone that has had their life literally taken over by Jesus, you become his witness. Every day, at every moment, like it or not, we testify to what we know. You can't sit here and say, missions is for someone else. Mission is for you. It's for you. And it starts right where you are. And it goes in a bigger picture, and even a bigger picture in the places that we don't want to go, ultimately the very ends of the earth. And this is a huge principle for us. We're a very small little gathering of church people in a church plant, but we have a huge desire to be an impact community right where we are in our neighborhood, in our city, to individuals, into the very world. We have very intentionally formed partnerships with missionaries all over the world. And for our little church, we have six missionaries that we support and that we're partnering with just right now, and we're hoping to blow the doors off that, but we have some of those we've already been to. Some of you in this room have been with us to Guatemala to be a part of what Brandon and Jenny Scott are doing down there. We've loved the churches that they've loved. Some of you have gone with us to China to be a part of what Will and Amanda were doing as they took the gospel to college kids that have never heard. Some of you have gone with us to Africa where we established and built churches. We also have missionary partners in Bosnia that are working with college students to share the gospel with, literally with, with people that were in the Eastern Bloc that have never heard about Jesus Christ. Billy and Jess Strew are over there with their lives. We support them financially, and we're hopefully sending a team over there in the next little while. We have missionary friends in Peru that are, that are engaged in sports ministry to take the gospel to children. We're hoping to get down there really quickly, too. We've got missionary partners that we support in Nicaragua. Where a few years ago, remember, we raised money and built a dental clinic. We partnered to build a dental clinic with Keith and Kelly Rogers to give dental care to the most impoverished people in the mountains of Nicaragua. These are intentional partnerships. Partnering with like-minded people that have said, we believe that God has called us to go and bury our life there. And as a church, we've said, we want to be a part of that. We want to love you and support you financially. And our little church gives money to them 
And more than just giving money, we pray for them. You hear me talk about them all the time. And we want to send teams to support them. We have a huge desire to be a church that lives out what we talk about when it comes to sharing the gospel living missionally by partnering with people that have given their lives to go to the very ends of the world. And yes, mission begins locally, absolutely, it is local, and, but global mission is a huge part of that. I had a real big kind of deep conversation and argument with someone who said, Treb, here's the deal, here's my issue with mission. There are so many problems here. And we're sending all this money to other countries when we have people in our own backyard that are in poverty. And that person is very right. I mean, one out of five children in Oklahoma will go to bed hungry tonight. One out of five children. However, it's a both and. We can't really believe that once we feed every starving child in Oklahoma and every starving child in America, then and only then can we begin to look outside its boundaries to say, once we've taken care of ourselves, then we can begin to take care of the world. It's a both and. And we had this big long discussion about how that is the heartbeat of the gospel. It's not an either or, it's not a first then, it's a both and. That we want to be a church that cares deeply about the one in five children, that cares deeply about the fact that there are people in our own backyard that are living in poverty, that are sleeping on our doorsteps, that are under bridges. But at the same time, we care deeply about the fact that today, 15,000 people will die because of disease they, they have accrued or come in contact with through lack of access to clean water. 15,000 people because they couldn't get clean water will die today. We want to care about that too. As a church, we don't have the luxury, as followers of Christ, we don't have the luxury to say, first us, first here, then there. It's a both and. The reality is God doesn't need us but God calls us. That same conversation I had, someone said, Treb, look, it doesn't matter anyway. I mean, we're going to send our $2,000 over there, and we're going we're gonna to do this, and it doesn't matter. I mean, we're not going to change the fact that people are dying. And my simple answer was this, you're right. We're not going to change that. But what matters is that God tells us to go, and so we live in obedience. And how God wants to use our obedience is up to him. And I've been to 30-something countries over the course of the past 15 or 16 years taking teams to do mission work. And, and I've had trips where I've spent two weeks and nothing has happened. Like we have worked and worked and worked and I felt like nothing, nothing. We saw no fruit or seemed like we saw no fruit or we beat our heads against the wall. We had doors shut in our faces all the time. And then I've been on a, a trip where we've seen six, seven, eight thousand people come to know Christ and the local church flourish. One's not a success and one's not a failure. Because as believers, when we say yes to Jesus, obedience is all God requires. Results are not up to us. Obedience is. Obedience is. So we say yes, we will be a church that will take the gospel. As we love each other much and well, we'll take the gospel to the individual in my neighborhood, to the person I work with, to my sister to the city, we'll put in roots, we'll love this community well, we'll walk up and down the streets and we will tell people about the God that changed us and at the same time we'll take the gospel to the world because God you are telling us to and we'll support those that have given their lives in that process and we will send teams to support them. As a church that's how we want to exist. 
We want to be a church that turns the world upside down. And that doesn't happen by size, and it doesn't happen by dollar amounts. It happens through obedience. As we prepare to close in worship, take a look at this video and, and begin to think about how we as a church might be able to live as world changers. Um, um, the question is, is the gospel a message of peace and love? And I would say, of course, um, but we live out the gospel in a world that is not peaceful and is not loving, and therefore it becomes incredibly disruptive. And I find it interesting and sad <laughs> that so many expressions of Christianity in our context are so easily ignored. They, they're not something that people get upset about um, or excited about. They're just kind of there, and it's an option. You know, if you do the church thing, cool. If not, cool. And that's just so not what I see in Scripture, and more specifically the book of Acts, where you see the disciples going out, and every city that they went to, there were intense emotional reactions to the gospel, whether intensely in favor of it or intensely against it. People either converted and joined them and radically changed their lives and started giving, or they hated them and they wanted to drive them out of their city and stone them and kill them. But there was never this ignoring of it. Um, and so I, I think about that and it comes to a head in Acts chapter 17. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture where uh, they had reached uh, the city of Thessalonica and the people of the city say, those, talking about Christians, those who have turned the world upside down have come to our city as well. And I think that's what it is. Like, that's what the faith does. To, when, it's, when it's expressed authentically, it completely changes everything. And people who understand it, whether they believe it or not, um, they will see that. They'll notice that. And they'll be like, this gospel, this Jesus thing changes everything. And either I'm going to be a part of it or I'm not. But it's not something that will be ignored. So this is a poem I kind of wrote around that theme. It's time to change the pace. Rethink the plan. Reset the hands of time to approximately 33 A.D. We all just received the Great Commission, and there's no handbook or howtodomissions.com. No data, no graphs keeping track of how many souls we saved, no missions organizations or board of directors, no hierarchy aside from the Lordship of Christ, and he just told us to go. God forbid we tiptoe our way to the uttermost parts of the earth. There's no place for fretful feet when the message we're carrying saves lives. You know as well as I, our task is urgent. But I can see the fear in your eyes. Our future is uncertain and we feel so vulnerable because Christ told us the world would be against us. But if the Lord sent us, then his spirit will go with us. So we pray for courage and proceed. For if we let fear stop us, we can't let fear stop us. This is too real. It changes everything and everyone needs to know and we'll do anything so they can. Even if it means changing everything. 
For we believe God is doing something new, something great, something we don't fully comprehend, but we walk by faith. And when we enter a place, whether or not souls are saved, people will say, those who turn the world upside down have come here as well. Indeed, we did. Letting the nations know that it's time to change the pace, rethink the plan, reset the hands of time to now. Now we remember our calling is ancient. We are not the first to go, but we may be the last. So how will we conclude this legacy of revolutionaries? To follow in the footsteps of pioneers requires we not follow in their footsteps, but tread upon grounds untrodden. Have we forgotten that God is doing something new, something great, something we don't fully comprehend, but we walk by faith as we change the pace, rethink the plan? Reset the hands of time until it ends. Let's stand together and uh, commit that and seal that in our hearts and in our minds as, uh, as we continue to worship this morning.